This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. And John Alexander is back with us, and I think it is his fifth time on Dreamland. And uh, we have been friends for a very long time, John and I. And we go back too far, my friend. Many um, decades. <laughs> exactly, decades. Anyway, uh, I, I want to just, uh, before we go on, folks, next week, Dreamland has its annual two-week special year-end show. Uh, on it will be Yuri Geller, uh, Linda Moulton Howe, Jimmy Church, and me. And we should have a lot of fun, so look forward to it. It's always a great show. John, I'd like to welcome you back to Dreamland. It's exciting to have you here. The last time we were together was, I think, uh, uh, in October, when we talked about John's book, Reality Denied. And since then, I have finished my book, Them, which is a discussion of the visitors from a completely different new standpoint, uh, not as uh, aliens and not as really any definite thing, but uh, rather an examination of their personality and their approach through their approaches to us both and our, our reactions to them both in individual situations and in the military. In that book, I discuss a document that I received from, um, belief from, I didn't receive it. No, I found it actually on Richard Dolan's website. I knew about it. I knew about the meeting that was discussed in the, is recorded in the document in part, the meeting notes that are there, because, uh, I had talked about them with Edgar Mitchell some years ago when we, uh, uh, meeting we had at, um, Lawrence Rockefeller's estate in uh, South Carolina and with John Mack and Lawrence and Ann. And, uh, and that was that meeting came up and was discussed. And you're listed as being in the meeting. And what it is, is an attempt to figure out where to look in the within the intelligence community for information about what people know and what has been, uh, what was being done, if anything, about the whole overall overarching UFO question. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about that meeting insofar as you remember it and if it led anywhere? Well, first of all, that's seriously misleading. And I understand, I mean, there's, Tons of stuff on the internet, and I always warn people: be careful what you what you see there, and people think they know. Actually, there were a series of meetings uh, that were held. They were at the uh, TSSCI level, on the top secret and special, and, and uh, we uh, held them uh, actually physically at uh, BDM. Um, this went on for a number of years, uh, which you described as the intent was, yeah, to sort of figure out uh, what was going on. It was literally an old boy network, and that there weren't any women. Uh, yeah, but that was because we had to know who you were and what the organizations were, of course, to hold the clearances, be able to pass them, and then to, uh, you know, discuss. Uh, what was going on? Our, our premise was literally the, you remember the last scene, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that uh, somebody had found something, that they had looked at it, figured what the hell beyond us, we'll put it away and come back and decades later, half a century or whatever, and see if we can uh, figure it out. Of course, what we found was uh, quite different. Uh, now, one of the ground rules, and we should mention, that's what surprised me a bit about the papers so I have learned about, was no written records. And the reason for that is FOIA, or the Freedom of Information Act, had just come into vogue. And what they never expected that was to be inundated 
by request for UFO data. I understand at one time, half of the FOIA requests that came in literally were UFOs, although obviously there was a wide range of things from the government uh, that needed to be disclosed. Uh, but in, uh, I admit, uh, that in order to evade the FOIA request, we said no written records. Now, I understand that uh, I think Oak Shannon and Jack Houck, who were two of the participants, uh, violated that. And somehow over time, their written records, when they went back to their respective organizations, uh, then migrated uh, and are now generally in the public domain. So <laughs> that's how that information got there. But the, that would be a snapshot of several meetings that happened. Uh, Edgar, who was a personal friend like with you, uh, was not included uh, in that at that time. I think he was still, I forget when he actually retired from the astronaut corps, but uh, I did not meet him until several years later. And as you know, we were on the uh, NIDS uh, Science Advisory Board together. Now, I think it might have been through his association with NIDS that the documents ended up in his hands. Um, I, I'm, I'm just guessing wildly here. I, I don't know. But when we discussed them, the tone of the discussion was interesting. And I think it'll interest you th that the problem with the whole system is exactly that. It's pencils up. That there's so many of these meetings are held without a record being kept. In fact, uh, when General Exxon and I discussed in 1988, this whole thing, he said he was still returning to write Pat in that in 1988 fairly frequently to be in discussions because so much of what they had done in the early days was never written down, and he was he he was using his memory. Unfortunately, not five years later, his memory failed and he got Alzheimer's disease, but. Uh, yeah, but in any it case, nasty, nasty indeed. Yeah, I think the two of us are hopefully too old to to start with that, and you don't certainly have it, and I don't think I do either. Anyway, no, but uh, and this is a, is a digression, but a warning to folks: my mother in law died with that, and we watched the degradation over time, and it is just devastating to watch and be involved in. Oh yeah, in any case. Uh, the the fact is that this pencils up issue means that as this material emerges more in various ways, either officially, semi-officially, or unofficially, it's going to be very hard for historians to put a picture together. And what are we going to? Is there anything to be done about that? I don't know. Uh, the reason some of it came to light, by the way, was that uh, I had held the two or three meeting of the lieutenant colonel uh, at the time had done this ad hoc without telling my bosses or anything. I want to be clear. This was not a top down driven sort of thing. And many people think, well, the hierarchy did it. I don't know. We, this was bottom up. Uh, and finally, I had a three-star boss down the corner and said, oh, and then I had to say, well, I need to confess something that, um, you know, we've been holding these meetings. I don't want the first time you hear it to be in the Washington Post, uh, which everybody <laughs> feared. And he said, gee, that's kind of interesting. Uh, I think we ought to tell our four-star boss who was down at the other end of the building, who similarly said, yeah, uh, Interesting, just keep me apprised and let me know if I can help. Yeah. Um, the uh, Folks, by the way, we have reached the first break. And you know something interesting about Unknown Country and Dreamland? Unknown Country's website activity has grown more than 300% in a year. And Dreamland's listenership is burgeoning. But one of the things not changing is the number of subscribers we have to support this thing. And I don't want to go to advertising. I really don't. So step up and 
put your five bucks a month out and and advert and uh, get cracking with uh, being a subscriber. And if well, you are support. a subscriber, please. What you're looking for is support. Um, you know that it takes effort to do these sorts of things and resources. This is not a free enterprise. That's for sure. Okay, free Dreamlanders, we'll be right back. This is a brief excerpt from an interview with two contactees who had an 11-day close encounter experience and are now willing to speak about it, really, for the first time. To hear their whole interview and many others, subscribe to unknowncountry.com. Here's the excerpt. Did you see the man's face? Yes. Uh, actually, that one is very clear to me. It was kind of longish, and uh, he didn't look... He didn't look completely human, but he, because he had very, very thin hair, almost non-existent, but he was young, I believe that it was kind of blonde. And he was very tall, like six, at least six feet. And he was so thin that he looked kind of strange. And what happened then? Well, he wanted me to to go with him or to stay with him. He wanted me to stay with him on the ship. And I'd been married for six months, and I wasn't about to go running off to stay on the ship. Now, surely you want more. You must want more. And there is more, not only this contactee interview, but many others, many of them just as extraordinary on unknowncountry.com, plus everything else that we offer, my audiobooks, the meditations, the talks on the key, William Henry's wonderful revelation show and its entire run, and Strieber's brilliant and magical mysterious powers, and so much more. Hours and hours of listening pleasure. Learn from the meditations on the site. Really learn because they're real and they're valuable. Subscribe to unknowncountry.com right now. Go to unknowncountry.com. Click on the subscribe tab. We are running very low on new subscribers now, and that should not be. It should not be happening. So you do it. You go there and you do it today. We're talking to John Alexander, his website, johnalexander.com. His most recent book, which we discussed on Dreamland last year, is Reality Denied. And it's an interesting book indeed. It's got some of, John's a good storyteller, and it's got some of the most interesting stories in it. And, John, why don't you tell us a little bit, let's get into Chris Bledsoe and your relationship with him for a little bit, if we could. Well, I would remind the audience, the subtitle is Firsthand Experiences with Things That Can't Happen But Did. (laughs) So a wide range of of topics. First chapter, of course, Skinwalker Ranch. The second one is uh, Chris Bledsoe. And that is an evolving story that certainly has not ended. Uh, Chris had had, I think, I believe it was 2007, a terribly, terribly complex case uh, where he's down on the Cape Fear River, uh, sees uh, UFOs, has missing time. He's abducted. Son gets chased. They go home. Uh, and the situation continues. He lived in uh, North Carolina, just south of Fayetteville. And what they were uh, doing is he looks out and sees an entity outside his window. Now, he lived on a fairly large area, about a five-acre thing, and he goes outside, and whatever this thing is, it chases him. And finally, he turns around and says, okay, you got me. And so there's got a telepathic message that says, you don't understand. We're here to help. 
Didn't know what that mean. About that time, Chris Jr. showed up, entity disappears. Next morning, uh, about well, getting close to noon, he finally says, gee, I haven't taken my medicine yet. And he had had Crohn's disease for many years prior to that. Anybody familiar with Crohn's knows it's terribly debilitating. Uh, you know, need to know where uh, all the rest facilities are and have quick access if you need it. Uh, but the point is, to this day, he has never taken another pill. Now, the story goes on, and I might mention that uh, Chris has a book that's coming out called UFO of God. It's going to be out uh, one March, uh, available now on uh, Amazon for pre-order, where he tells the story. And, and literally, to describe it, takes hours. And that was my first interview with him. However, so I had interviewed with him, and then my wife and I went down to visit and see this. So we went back to the original site on Cape Fear River, and it's getting well, early evening, uh, but still sort of light, and went down to the river, and we came back. My wife, Victoria, was with me and his daughter, Emily. So they're sitting in the back seat of the car, and... Um, uh, Chris and I are near the left front bumper. We're talking about this and that. He's telling me where things happened. And all of a sudden he goes, oh, I think they're here. And with that, within a few seconds, this thing pops into view above us and goes zipping off. That was the second time ever that I've seen anything related to a UFO. But the point was the temporal relationship between him saying, I think the sighting or something, they're here, and this thing coming into view and zipping off. And we have remained friends uh, ever since. I might say the phenomena have not stopped. They are continuing. Uh, I might mention there is a program, a, a new it's going to be, I think it's uh, Beyond the Skinwalker Ranch will be uh, airing next summer. And uh, Chris will be one of the features, I think the last one that's featured there where we're going. But the point is that this is where we get into the orb uh, phenomena. And this is, I think, is a ongoing and morphing as we speak. Okay, so, you know, you, you, you tempt me to say, let's talk about the orb phenomenon, which I think has got to be the next subject. So tell us, you know, you're, we're going to get folks, we're going to get more deeply into John's vision of what UFOs are and the whole uh, uh, relationship between the dead and the whole phenomenon in a little later but it, let's talk about orbs for a bit. Uh, why don't you give us some ideas about how that comes in because of Chris Bledsoe and then yeah. what it, it comes to mean to you? Well, uh, an early slide in all of my briefings that I give is, what do you mean by a UFO? And that is because we have orbs and little balls of light. We've also got hard craft, you know, a mile or two across, and these thousands and thousands of variations in between. But what is interesting in the orb phenomenon, this is something that has come up with him and now some other people who are uh, interacting. But he feels that there is some sort of telepathic or psychic communication that does take place. We also know that this is probably spiritual in nature and that probably frightens some uh, people as well. Uh, but let me tell you about an incident that did happen. Like I say, Chris sends me every few days, I get new uh, videos where he goes out in the backyard and sees these orbs flying out. It's fairly close range. I mean, we're not talking, you know, lights in the sky. You can't predict it. Uh, most interesting, some of them uh, actually inside of buildings. 
but he seems to have this telepathic communication, knowing when they're there. And he had mentioned that uh, when I talk to him, tend to appear more. Now, I'm in Las Vegas. He's in North Carolina. So in October, uh, I gave him a call, and it was late afternoon here, dark in uh, North Carolina. And so he went outside. Uh, and as he's taking his camera with him, but we're talking on the phone. So the phone conversation continues and he starts seeing orbs and describing. Now, what's interesting about that to know that it can't be faked is on the video, you can hear us talking on the phone. So we know that it's happening in real time and watching these uh, things go up. There are some that feel that there's an attempt at communication. I've done uh, what's not going to be an afterword for, for the book and says maybe we're looking at the beginning of interspecies communication. That And some of them feel that there's trying to be some sort of interaction uh, between the side. Now, what's missing, of course, is a Rosetta Stone. Don't know what they're saying. But it's clear that there's, uh, you know, some sort of mental or telepathic communication where he's aware of them and they seem to be aware of him and some other people. So this is interactive on a larger scale. You know, I think the telepathic communication is the whole key here and that we have trouble hearing it. Because, you know, again and again in my own research, in fact, into the letters, the communion letters that we, we got, which I have been researching for my book, for them, uh, you see that when they are in closer proximity to us, we can communicate with them telepathically, or they can with us, I should say. Is this? Do you think that there's any evidence that this may be a latent human ability that we could somehow regain? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, I'm, you had mentioned, you know, we're, this gets into postmortem communication and things like that as well. And that's what mediums are basically doing is communicating with discarnate entities or some form of telepathic communication that takes place. Their admonition to us is exactly what you're describing is, you know, be still and listen. And uh, I'm not a good listener, but uh, I keep saying, you know, would somebody just give us the damn message and we'll go do whatever it is that we're uh, supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> why why do they pussyfoot around like this? Yeah. It's driving me crazy too. I think it is all of us because, I mean, for that matter, why don't they declare themselves in some definite way? But they never seem to. Could it be that they don't know they're not doing that? That they think they are and we just don't get it? I'm not sure. Uh, we're getting some terribly complex issues of what is consciousness, the continuation. One of the things I've stressed is we believe that consciousness continues beyond bodily death, beyond all reasonable doubt. Uh, oh, yeah. one, of the, one of the questions that emerges is, if consciousness continues, does that mean personality uh, continues? Uh, lots of folks right now, the mediums who are out there having uh, interaction with many of the discarded entities, particularly those who are known, that come back and give personal details about their life and as well as what's uh, continuing uh, in other dimensions. Uh, but where this, these things, I think, come to you, at least for me, is uh, you may know I come down against the ETH, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, not because the interactions don't happen, but because that is just too simple. It does not answer all of the complex issues and the things that we're seeing uh, across the board. Uh, we're now talking about, you know, multidimensional, interdimensional, or ultra-dimensional. But I do think that there is correlation uh, between all of these issues. Now, whether we'll understand it or not, 
that, like I say, we're missing the Rosetta Stone, and I don't know if they don't understand. I suspect they have a better understanding than we do, who are physically incarnate. Uh, but uh, a lot to be learned here. We're going to take another break, uh, Free Dreamlanders. Enjoy these commercials. Subscribers, we will keep on keeping on. Where is the unknown country? Is it out there in the stars? Or is it also somewhere else? Is it in us, in you? Unknown country, join us today. Go to unknowncountry.com right now and join us. Join the questions. Join the search. Join the adventure. Unknowncountry.com. There's no place like it in the world. We're talking to John Alexander, an old, old friend. We go back quite a while. And we have, he's been on Dreamland many times. His website is johnalexander.com. His most recent book is Reality Denied. And we are sort of exploring that area, if you will. And we've been talking about consciousness and the survival of personality and you know, something this has always interested me is that I have had myself, and I'm sure most of my listeners, many of my listeners have, and I know you have had astonishing experiences with mediums who knew all kinds of details about your life and, and, and the lives of your loved ones. In my case, very, that they could not have picked up anywhere. It was just amazing stuff. They'll even co-authored with you. <laughs> right. But here is a question. Well, my wife, I mean, is an example, but here's the question. They can't prophesy successfully because if you look across the prophecies of the mediums dating back into the 19th century, it's a hit or miss affair. So what's going on here? They, they don't, they're not all powerful. They don't see the future but they do try to prophesy, and yet they know us inside and out. Well, it's, I'll, I'll give you a, literally a war story. Uh, my, uh, I was in Special Forces, and as a captain, my, I had a major, uh, Stan Oshevik, who was the uh, B-team commander, and we would talk about these things. And it turns out he was from what was in Czechoslovakia, and had become a displaced person or a DP after the war, and World War II. And it says in the DP camps, they didn't have much to do. So they spent a lot of time on Ouija boards and doing this kind of contact. And uh, I won't use the exact words, but, uh, you know, he says, yeah, we had these contacts, and some of them were dumb expletive deleted. <laughs> so, and one of the kind of cute quotes that I heard at a conference one time from people who work with medium say, just because you're dead doesn't mean you're smart. <laughs> That's beautiful. Just okay. But still, oh, wait a minute. I, I must remember to reappear when, I, when I'm talking. I'm not a ghost either. A discarnate voice. <laughs> a discarnate entity on the show uh, with a strangely familiar voice. They don't, is it that they can't prophesy? You know, Anne told me that she couldn't see the future very clearly, more clearly than we can, you can, she said, but not all that clearly. And maybe that, but if that's the case, maybe some of them don't understand that and they think they can prophesy. Well, we're also into a conundrum of uh, the issue of, you know, all, the whole issue of time and space, because some are suggesting 
that, you know, everything is happening simultaneously when you get into the quantum later. So past, present, and future are, you know, coincidental. Uh, having said that, there's others where, you know, we have had some uh, accurate uh, predictions. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, an experiment that you're probably familiar with, but in the whole area of remote viewing. Uh, now, early on, everybody thought it's some sort of electromagnetic thing and whatnot. But when you start getting into perturbating time, i.e. precognitive or retrocognitive sorts of things, then you're different. Now, there's a, a classic experiment was done by uh, Bob John, who was a dean of School of Engineering at Princeton, and it ran the Paralab. And they had an outbounder remote viewing experience where an individual was going to Europe. And so they set up the time, and what they did is they had the remote viewers look and say, what will this person see 24 hours in the future? And the point was the individual was going forward, uh, and there were several targets, and the target had not been selected yet. And yet the people recorded accurately what that individual would see. Uh, and, you know, the description came in. It was a bridge uh, in Czechoslovakia. And, uh, you know, amazingly accurate details. So questions on how do you perturbate time? And, of course, more interesting to some folks is retrocognition, going back and looking at historic events. Now, we're dealing ultimately here with discarded entities. People have passed on. Do they have access uh, to information and what information? Now, one of the things I like is uh, Gary Schwartz, and we ought to talk about Gary's work. But um, he had what he called the dream team of uh, mediums looking out and prognosticating and reporting information. And the point was that some of them, you know, sometimes get accurate information. Now, we tend to concentrate on the accurate cases and not so much on, you know, the information that didn't fit. And he used the Michael Jordan uh, syllogy for what uh, what was happening. And it was, he says, look, Michael Jordan, at the best of his career, shot about 45%, and yet he's revered. And why? Because he's so much better than everybody else. And that's what he pointed to in the mediums, that they seem to have a degree of accurate information that's better now and sometimes proves to be uh, accurate. I don't know. Do you want to go into uh, Chico Xavier? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Certainly we do. Well, uh, for people who don't know, and I reckon you can find the whole story, literally movies about his life. Chico Xavier was a, a Brazilian medium and got to the point where he literally had his own television show and was going to. So uh, he had psychograph. By the way, his life, physical life, was absolutely horrendous growing up. Nothing that anybody would want to endure. Uh, but he was writing books and wrote hundreds of books, millions in print. Never took credit for it. He says this stuff was all uh, information that was channeled uh, to him. Now, a few years ago, the University of Sao Paulo did a study on Chico, and what they did is they took information from people who had known to live. So you had accurate uh, writings from them, and then they compared it with the psychographs uh, that were supposedly from the same uh, person and found out it was 98% accurate and the other 2% just uh, couldn't be determined. Uh, but he wrote books and he's got several out there. And you look up on the, what is the continuation of consciousness and what goes on. Uh, but uh, you know, the degree of accuracy was, you know, in many cases, 
actually, you know, quite, quite profound. Might mention, you know, taking it a step farther, he was actually sued uh, in Brazilian court by uh, for copyright infringement <laughs> by a family of a, of a person who was now discarnate. And they're saying, no, you're making money off of somebody in our family. Now, the courts did not hold up, but it did get that far. <laughs> That's a great story. I'd never heard that before. Oh, the first uh, the first time when a lawsuit like that does hold up, it's going to mean the world has really changed. Now, we've been to we we at the beginning of this discussion, we brushed across the issue of whether or not personality survives, and it certainly seems to, in the sense that in my case, I mean, it's Anne said an interesting thing. She said. I'm not Anne anymore, but I will always be Anne for you. Yeah. Can you kind of speak to that? How how consciousness and personality may work together in the afterlife? I, I, I don't know how to top what she said, uh, quite frankly. And, and again, in talking to mediums, the information that they put is directly related to you know, their life, and sometimes have a knowledge of what's going on in the current world uh, as well, and current information. And yet there's others that, you know, they say, part of the conundrum, um, you shed all that. You shed the human requirements and, you know, personality, have access to, you know, bigger and more you know, on a spiritual level, that it's all communications, it's all consciousness, and that's a, a leveling process. Uh, what, I, what a, a friend of mine, uh, Evan Alexander, no relative, but I highly recommend his books, uh, where Evan is so significant is that he had been a neurosurgeon for 25 years before he had this extended uh, near-death experience that lasted nearly a week that he was out of it. Um, and he wrote Proof of Heaven and several other books. But his point there was, A, reincarnation is a reality, but there are, you know, kind of orders of uh, complexity that as we you know evolve then you start to understand that but it is literally beyond comprehension but his notion was that when he was in the discarnate state uh, a near-death experience uh, had an understanding where he could integrate that and it would literally be on our ability to comprehend the, the totality of complexity. But the best we can do is just kind of chug along and, and try to make uh, incremental uh, improvements. And to try to understand in some way. And, you know, if we did understand, I'm wondering if the barrier between the living and the dead would fall. And this gets me to the whole issue of the presence, which I think is what a lot of us are starting to call, what I used to call the visitors and a lot of people still call the alien phenomenon. But the presence seems bigger and a word, a bigger word and more a more useful one in many respects because there's so much about this that we just kind of don't, don't fully get. Um, but well, isn't it that we're you know, when you talk to the, the message that seems to come out, there's literally the meaning of life, and that is to experience things here in the physical world in our physical bodies, you know, you eventually shed them and recycle. But it is the growth process on a spiritual nature, and you know, what do you do? And, Karma can be a bitch, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Uh, I'm convinced that my brother's got a lot of bad karma because all the practical jokes he plays on me. Just as an aside, folks, I'm going to get him on the show by trying to trick him into talking about Bigfoot, which is his big, big interest. Only I'm going to talk about those pranks if, if, if we ever get him to settle down and be on the show. He listens to every show, so now he knows this, but that's okay. All right, now... Let me take, let's do this. We're just coming up on another break period. So let's take that next break and then we'll just get on with more. Uh, We'll be right back. Free Dreamlanders. This is Whitley Strieber. Listen to me now from June of 2010, talking to Alan Lammers about an incredible thing that happened to him on the island of Sulawesi in Indonesia. Here you are in South Sulawesi in the little town in the district of Sandu Batu. You were, what happened? You were told something rather strange. Well, we were told before we went, um, like my, my friends that I work with in, with the NGO, they told me that when you pack, because it kind of happened by accident, I went out to buy a raincoat. It rains quite a bit in this part of the world. And so I went out and I bought a yellow raincoat. And my friend said, I'm sorry, you can't, you can't take that to Walla Walla. And I said, well, why not? And he says, well, it's the, you can't wear that color. So anyways, excuse me. So I thought, okay, well, what colors can I wear? They, they said, well, you can only wear black or white. You cannot wear any bright colors, no bright green especially no yellow and you know that's all you should bring and i and i said well what would happen and they said well uh people disappear you will find the rest of that story and it is brain bending in the june 5th edition of dreamland june 5 2010 edition of dreamland in the unknowncountry.com archive this archive is one of the richest of its kind in the world, probably is the richest of its kind in the world, filled with extraordinary shows, of which this show is certainly one, this show with Alan Lammers. You will never have heard anything like it. It does what Dreamland is here to do. It opens your mind to the fact that we live inside a hidden reality that we prefer not to acknowledge, but not here. Here on unknowncountry.com, we do acknowledge it. We live in it and we love it. Subscribe today. You can't go wrong. Go to unknowncountry.com right now and get started. We're talking to John Alexander, his new book, Reality Denied, his website, johnalexander.com. John is a, an adventurer of the first order. He has been, and I didn't really introduce you because at the beginning of the show, John, because, you know, I know you so well, and my listeners do too, after these years of being together on the show, but... John is a. Tell us a little bit about your your life in the military and what you did in terms of non lethal weapons and so forth. <laughs> well, life in the military. Well, it was thirty some years and actually nearly half a century if you count the other things that happened after I uh, physically retired. My second career was Los Alamos, and then. Uh, another decade as a senior fellow with the Joint Special Operations University. Uh, I entered the Army in 1956 as a private, said, uh, left college and said, I want to go jump on airplanes. Uh, thought that would be more exciting than going to school. Uh, went to the 101st Airborne, uh, became a ranger. Uh, while there, interestingly, I was a medic. Very unusual as we had a medical company that probably had more rangers than the infantry company. A side issue then uh, got into uh, special forces, 
uh, eventually went to uh, as a sergeant first class and then went to uh, OCS, uh, became a second lieutenant and uh, came back and uh, like I say, various special forces assignments at research and development and uh, also worked with the intelligence community as some of them know. We did a lot of wild and wonderful things uh, particularly there, some of you know about remote viewing, of course. Uh, did a lot of work with uh, psychokinesis. I heard you mention uh, Uri Geller uh, on the next program. Uri is a longtime friend also, who actually did the foreword uh, for the book uh, Reality uh, Denied. Uh, so I, I had met him uh, I can say decades ago and followed his career uh, we also worked uh, another one, uh, if you're familiar with uh, Cleve Baxter and uh, some of the work that he did in what he called primary perception, uh, showing that there are connections in consciousness in ways that's not well understood. Uh, certainly, you're familiar with the thing on plants talking. Uh, if you want to get into the really wild and wonderful, this is much, much later. But my wife is a uh, ayahuasca devotee. We have traveled around the world to all eight continents and uh, dealt with shamans uh, across the world and some very unusual experiences there. Uh, but uh, have dealt with uh, ayahuasca, uh, ayahuasqueros, tabasqueros, uh, shamans, and particularly in the uh, Amazon uh, region. But, uh, and then, as I said, second career was Los Alamos National Laboratory. That's where I got into non-lethal weapons. My last assignment on active duty, I was a colonel and was a director of advanced system concepts uh, for the Army. Had basically all the high, very front end, what we call basic science, high technology sorts of things. So continuation had looked at the conflicts that were emerging at the time. We're talking late 80s, early 90s now. Uh, just cause, urgent fury. And you're going, we had developed a military that had and still has overwhelming lethal force. So, but my point was that uh, you know, killing is not the objective although we talk about having a, a very lethal military, but you're really, from a global standpoint, looking at it, it's imposition of will is what you want to do, not necessarily killing adversaries, particularly when they have big families with long memories. So looked at the development of a whole concept on using non-lethal force to achieve uh, our objectives. Uh, you know, you mentioned Yuri, and uh, who's also been a friend of mine for a long time, and um, a very cool guy. <laughs> I think he's really extraordinary. But I, I want to go a little bit down another road that's related to what he can do and what he does. And that is the Qigong experiences that you talk about in um, Reality Denied. Uh, they were quite extraordinary and they suggest the presence and i'm leading somewhere here folks it's going to be really interesting i think uh the presence of a of a force or a power in the human body i mean i've watched yuri bend spoons uh and, and do all kinds of things and uh, i know about the uh indonesian mystic and called Dynamo Jack, who could do all kinds of bizarre things like that. But tell us about let's the, the, the Qigong demonstration in that you witnessed in China, if, if you can. I'm not sure which one. I've seen well, several. How about the one in Taiwan, maybe in, uh, uh, in involving the raising of the plastic balls? The raising of? Okay. I'll, I'll keep going. Uh, how about the one in Beijing 
at the branch of the Shaolin Monastery. You remember that one? Oh, yes, that was... Okay, uh, there we go. There well, we go. what was interesting on that is that uh, we were there and literally the derivative of the Shaolin Monastery, but they have one in Beijing, and they were, we were there with a group watching his demonstration go on. And uh, one of them is they had taken a spear and pressed it against the throat, worked into it, and uh, bent the spear. So as, as we were dissipating, I said, gee, that looks kind of interesting. Uh, can I try that? And um, yeah, I was able to, you know, I'm not sure I really understand how it works, but certainly the ability of the body to withstand these things. Um, I mentioned this is one in which you obviously have a very organized practice where they work for years and years. Uh, on doing it. And yet around the world, we have seen people that some of them have these extreme disciplines. Uh, others seem to have spontaneous uh, events that allow, you know, things that physically shouldn't happen uh, to happen. Uh, if I can digress, I'll, I'll give you one example is in uh, West Africa and dealing with fire. This happens to be one of my favorite ones because we think we understand the rules of thermodynamics. If you've got something hot, you put your hand in it, you get burned. And yet here we were watching individuals at very close range. I mean, we're talking a few feet away and stand in fire, sit in the fire, eat fire. Uh, one of the interesting ones, uh, the main guy has a lot of chin whiskers and you see his whole face just disappear in flames, um, and yet uh, there's no singeing. And how do you do that? The other interesting aspect, uh, since you mentioned the power, watch him pass the power. Uh, they had two young boys that uh, came out, uh, probably 10 or so years old, and what he does, he takes his elbow and he goes over and taps them on the head and passes the power, and then they seem to be able to do that. Um, again, just have, have seen these things around the world, and it's, as I say, that defies the laws of thermodynamics and the others, the things that we know about physics and conservation of energy, uh, and, you know, yeah, the demonstrations are there. What's What's amazing to me is, yes, these things occur. That's why I said it was first-hand experience with the things that can't happen but did. Why doesn't this move us more? So you had mentioned something earlier. And one of the things I keep hearing, by the way, is, you know, it's changing, we're evolving and that. And yet over decades haven't seen a lot of spiritual evolution, you know, with the groups. Uh, not sure what it takes for how many individuals, how many times do you have to see the impossible before you say, well, one of my quick quotes to uh, the UFO community uh, who say, we want disclosure. And I said, the problem is they won't take yes for an answer. <laughs> That's so true. You know, Jeff Crapel, my co-author on yeah. Supernatural, has just written a book, which we're going to be talking to Jeff about on the show, called The Superhumanities, that deals directly with the question of why do, are we like this? Why do we, why do we stand in front of this amazing array of realities and pretend it's a brick wall that we can't get through? And, you know, it gets me back to the presence and the thought that it doesn't have a barrier between what we think of as the living and the dead. And there's a story in uh, Kathleen Marden's book about contact, about a man who shot one of the entities in, and 
the result was it haunted him after that. In other words, it its body was destroyed, but it wasn't destroyed spiritually, and he ended up with a very pissed-off ghost to deal with. Well, uh, let me... I'll inject a real-world thing that people from my profession don't deal with. Um, yeah. Uh, having killed folks and lots of folks that did it. Remember, I was in Vietnam and all that. Let me tell you, um, very little secret is that, yeah, the dreams follow. And one of the things I mentioned, particularly the war on terror, that we have no idea uh, what the true cost of that is. I don't mean just in dollars and cents. Well, that's an incredibly provocative statement. You have to say a little more. We don't know what the true cost of that is. Where are you going? Or where will either go a little farther with that or just riff on it, if you will, depending well, on how you want no, to do it. What I'm talking about there is direct and physical and psychological now familiar sort of with PTSD and you know, whatnot. Um, I would argue it is far more prevalent than, you know, many of us have integrated uh, pretty well. Personal experiences that, yeah, sometimes they come back and visit. And uh, it's, <laughs> you know, you've got to integrate that into the real world. Now, from a spiritual perspective, and that's a whole no number of level of uh, complexity. Maybe you have to do those sorts of things. If we believe in karma, you know, are these lessons that have to be learned and relearned and debts paid? Uh, one of the things I try to remember to do when we're together, John, and this is because this is such a meme and still to this day in the world of conspiracies and that is the uh william cooper book behold a pale horse has in it some discussions of you and me and dick hoagland and, and includes a letter a, quote unquote activating me and dick uh, signed by you and uh we've discussed this before and you pointed out that the letter, first, obviously, it's a forgery. And second, it is um, obvious that it is a forgery because of the fact that your rank on the letterhead is not the rank you held at the time the letter was written. And do you, it, we've never had, I just want to make this very clear, folks. We've never had any kind of, clandestine or uh, uh, or sub sub rosa relationship at all and i don't think dick oakland and you have either and so i just want to point out i don't want john doesn't have to you don't have to necessarily say about we uh, have had dinner together does that count yeah we did we've had dinner together more than once and uh we we had fun i gosh i still remember the time you came and stayed with us in san antonio when you were uh uh uh, uh, working with, with uh, Southwest Research on that friction-free surface. Well, great barbecue in New Brownsville. Yeah, that's absolutely right. But we never did that. It was never anything. There's never, there's no, we have no Subrosa relationship, folks. I just want to point that out. And now I want to move on because uh, those things are, are, are lies. And I, and I don't know whether Mr. Cooper believed that lie or what his problem was, but there's not this whole world of crazy conspiracies doesn't exist. But something that's really wild that does exist that you are fascinated with, and so am I, is voodoo. And we didn't talk about voodoo the last time we were on the air together. And you have a fascinating, wonderful chapter in it of uh, hearing the Haitian raided drums and 
which I have heard too, because I've been involved in a voodoo ceremony when I was a teenager, which was just wonderful fun. I mean, here I was a boy uh, uh, down in New Orleans and uh, we were, we were, uh, we went down into the, the Delta and went to a, me and a couple of other boys went to a voodoo ceremony and they were, loaded up they were drunk as the skunks and uh, they got kicked out but i got to see the whole thing because i was not a big drinker at the time and uh it was very moving and very extraordinary and i'd like you to talk to us a little bit about about voodoo well we saw that in uh, west africa and the the fire ceremony that i mentioned a few minutes ago was actually part of a voodoo ceremony but first of all, uh, I think you'd agree, everything that you know or think you know about voodoo, uh, for the most people, if you're getting this from television and movies, is wrong. It is far, far more complex. And voodoo is not just a religion in Africa and East participant. It is an entire way of life. And everything, and it's very spiritual uh, in nature. I remember going out with their guides, and this is in Africa, but they wanted to pick fruit. And before you pick the fruit, you ask permission to do it. Uh, they also had healing ceremonies. Most of voodoo actually is a very positive uh, sort of thing. Uh, of course, in Africa, the uh, availability of traditional health care is extraordinarily limited, uh, probably a thousand to one less uh, uh, medical practitioners, not just doctors, but people who practice traditional Western medicine. So these other natural healers uh, have taken over. Uh, I met a... Uh, a voodoo shaman, a picture of him someplace there, but uh, we're together. Uh, his job was to dream. Uh, literally, his thing was that he would, for his village, uh, his job was dreaming. Was, What's good? Where do we go? How do things uh, progress? Um, now, most of this came over from the Dahomeyan Empire, uh, with the slave trade and particularly picked up in the uh, uh, you know, Bahama region uh, in the, throughout the Caribbean. Uh, you find it in uh, Condomble and Macomba in uh, Brazil today. So these spiritist religions have continued. But it's uh, very, very sensitive and, like I say, a complete context for the way of life uh, for the folks involved. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It, it is a reality and the, for them. And you know, I recently read a book called Of Spirit and Water by Maladoma Patrice Somay, who wasn't a Vudun practitioner, but he was a, a West African shaman of the Dagara tribe. And there's another way of living there. And when we get back, I want to speculate together a little bit about the possi some possibilities that might explain some things that if we've got, we, the, the world is littered with, with ruins that we could not create today. The Great Pyramids, Nan Madal, uh, uh, the fortress at Sokwaman, uh, the platform at Baalbek, etc. And I want to speculate about the possibility that this has, that the fact that these things even exist has not something to do so much with an advanced, a very advanced civilization in the distant past, but a different way of mind. And I think it'll be a really interesting discussion. So free dreamlanders, if you want to enjoy that discussion, subscribe to unknowncountry.com and, and stay with us subscribers. This is going to be a great part of the show. We're talking to 
John Alexander. He Reality Denied is his new book, and he's a prolific author. He's got all kinds of stuff out there. A fascinating book on UFOs that we've discussed before that takes a completely different view of them than the usual uh, nuts and bolts vision, a much more sophisticated view. And the, the, one of John's great quotes is at the, on the frontispiece of them. John doesn't know that yet. He, he will find out when he gets his copy, signed copy. Uh, it is that this phenomenon is more complex than we can possibly imagine. I'm paraphrasing, but it's, that's essentially the, the, what's in the quote. And so we're going to keep on keeping on for uh, our subscribers. John's website is, of course, johnalexander.com. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by unknowncountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander. <laughs>